Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 387. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 387 you're listening to. My guest today is mixer, producer, author, and coach. Bobby Osinski making a second appearance here on Working Class Audio. I'll put a link in the show notes to the first appearance. Bobby has worked with a number of artists and companies, including Mick Taylor, Joe Houston, Rhino DVD, Forbes, Surround Pro Magazine, and many, many others. You can read more about him at bobbyosinski.com. We are going to talk about the release of the fifth edition of the Mixing Engineers Handbook that Bobby authored, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that, of course. But uh, always a good time talking with Bobby, and I think that you'll enjoy the conversation as usual. So very much looking forward to having him on. Bobby Osinski here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to share some random thoughts. Yeah, no central topic today. Don't have anything solid to, to report to you or, or rant about, but I have some random thoughts that I want to share. Some of you are wondering how the Atmos thing is going, and I'm happy to report that it's going well. You know, from a client perspective, mixes are coming in and just kind of getting into that workflow, trying to hold the line on price because, you know, you don't want to have a race to the bottom with this thing and, you know, be operating at bargain basement prices when you've made, you know, a pretty sizable investment here. So out of respect for not only myself, but respect for my other Atmos mixers out there, I don't want to be, you know, charging dirt cheap prices. But in short, it's going well and I'm really enjoying the process. Another random thought, Sony PCM-D100, great recorder. Unfortunately, Sony is discontinuing it. And if you have an opportunity to grab one, uh, I would encourage you to do so. If you do any kind of field recording or recording of concerts, whatever you're recording, honestly, uh, it's a great recorder. I'm not sure why Sony's discontinuing it. Maybe they're going to bring out another one. Anyhow, I took that out this weekend. I was at a local concert that my son was playing at. And there was a big band playing, and I happened to, right before their performance, drop the recorder uh, in front of the stage. Not drop it, literally, but, you know, place it on a stand and just kind of let it run for the entire show. Nobody asked me to do it, I, but I just did it. And then listening to the recording, thought, oh, wow, that, that actually came out great. And did a little mastering on it and posted it for the uh, the band to hear through through a mutual connection. And... Uh, They got a big thrill out of it, and I got a big thrill out of providing it to them. Just, you know, on occasion, capturing something like that and then giving it away to the people that it means something to gives me a huge amount of happiness. Makes me feel super happy to to do that, especially when you get the feedback and, and the gratitude over, you know, the emails that come back. Thanks so much for doing that. You know, didn't know you did that. That's awesome. Thank you for providing that. And it's also interesting, too, I was just laying in bed listening to this recording uh, last night as I was drifting off and had my AirPod Pros in my ears and listening to this thinking, how cool, I mean, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here, but I'm just happy that I recorded it because I thought this otherwise wouldn't exist as a document. And now these people have it and it makes me really happy to, to, you know, to give it to them. If you find yourself in that position to provide a recording to somebody of a performance, doesn't matter, you know, what kind of performance it is, capture it, offer it to them. You know, there's no financial incentive here. This is just purely like for the fun of doing it and for the thrill of, you know, knowing that it'll provide them with some pleasure and a document of what they did. I think that's kind of cool. Final random thought here, uh, ACDC, for those about to rock, we salute you. The CD has been in my car. Yes, I still have a car that has a CD player because my car is a 2007. And uh, I'm really happy that it does have a CD player because that's where I play all my CDs, really. I tell you what, if you haven't heard this record in a while, go back and listen to it. 
it's just like such a good sounding rock and roll record and it made me bring the cd out of the car here into the studio where i actually do have a cd player and sat and listened to it and it just gives me such pleasure i'm sitting here going through the book that's what that rattling is anyhow acdc for those about to rock we salute you great rock and roll record and really awesome sounding of course mutt lang produced and the the funny thing is is my uh my oldest memory of this record is a math teacher in sixth grade had this on vinyl and i asked him if i could borrow it mr gutierrez was his name he let me borrow it and i just think how cool that was to get a hold of that record at that time as a sixth grader in math i mean how cool is that that my math teacher would lend me this record i thought it was cool and my parents of course were super super cool that they didn't give me any grief like what are you listening to that rock and roll music from your math teacher and these days you never know uh if people are gonna you know raise hell with their their kids math teacher for sending them home with a record of course that probably isn't gonna happen right because they're records <laughs> anyways that's about it just a few random thoughts for you uh acdc's for those about to rock we salute you have a listen such a fun record that's my rant thanks for listening most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Bobby Osinski here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Bobby, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been a while. It's been a while. Episode 180 was the last episode you were on, and we're in the 380 range as we record this. So yeah, there's a couple of things that have happened between now and then. Yes, I understand that you've made the plunge into Atmos. Oh yeah, that's been like... Almost a year in, in the works, just 
from thinking about it and implementing it. And I just got the room tuned by Dolby. And apparently they're sending me a plaque and they've put me on the list. I'm using air quotes audience. They put me on this list of uh, Dolby Professional Studios. I don't know if that means it's certified. I was unaware that they were doing any kind of certification. I'm not really clear, but happy to have the plaque, happy to be on the list, and happy to have the room up and running. Now the work begins of actually doing mixes and hustling work. Yeah, I had somebody from Dolby on recently on my podcast and i asked them about the certification because i've been getting a lot of questions about that and they said oh we don't do that anymore i mean they'll do tuning but they don't certify a room like yeah. they used to so i'm really curious as to what's going to be on this plaque but hey you got one that's a good thing i got a plaque you know who doesn't like a plaque right yeah trophies for everybody but no actually i mean i went through the efforts of installing it properly and getting it tuned and it sounds great and i've already started mixing and I feel like a little kid getting into audio all over again. It's pretty cool from that perspective. Yeah, it's really interesting in that everything is different about it. There are some skills that are transferable, but it's surprisingly how different it is and, and how you have to have a different mindset. Yeah, and I never got into surround in any way, shape, or form in the past. So it's all new to me, and I don't have that experience of five one seven one to bring to the table. I'm just looking at it as a brand new thing. And I'm sure there are pros and cons to that. The con being, you know, I have no experience in surround from the past, so it's all brand new. But at the same time, I'm not carrying any preconceived notions from the past and I'm starting fresh. So I think that's exciting. Yeah, I well, I had a lot of 5.1 experience back in the day and I have to say, I thought the skills would be more transferable than they actually are. But the only thing is how you treat your subwoofer or, mm -hmm. or the, the LFE channel and how you treat the center, which was always a mm, bone of contention among mixers hmm. that you put in each. And I think that's sort of been sorted now, and it is a, it's a different way of approaching it anyway, so it's not that big a deal. Yeah, I don't know of, of those battles or those conversations. I just know, honestly, what I've been shown by some great people. You know, Steve Genowick, of course, was very instrumental in helping me get going, as was Brad Wood and, and the guys at PMC. And yeah, it's... I, I've had a lot of help along the way. A lot of very, very cool people who have been doing it a lot longer than I have in the short period of time that it's existed have really kind of took me into their wing and, and helped me out. So I'm grateful to them. The cool thing is that there are tools available and there has been tools pretty much from the beginning where when we started with 5.1, we didn't have anything. And to the point where... There was no such thing as a surround monitor controller. You had to kludge everything. There was no such thing as a surround panner. You had to kludge it. Wow. And this is an analog kludge that we had to do. So that's not the case now. The, the tools are there, and they're fairly easy to get, and they're inexpensive, which is the best part. Yeah, some of the tools are inexpensive. Some of them Some are. of them, yes, right, yeah. It's, you know, it's definitely been a costly thing that I ultimately sold a bunch of gear to acquire, and I think what, and you, you'll know this better than I will, but it seems that the difference now is the manufacturers are there as a support system, as is the delivery mechanism via Apple and the other services, as is Dolby's, of course, central involvement in all of it. So it's, it's like a, a, the ecosystem continues to grow on all fronts. The legs of the octopus are stretching out everywhere from the pro side to the consumer side and everywhere in between. And I've talked about it on the show quite a bit. I'm a big fan of the guys at Grace. Michael and Evan Grace are not only great people, they have a, a great little company there in Lyons, Colorado, but their controller, I got it and I'm thrilled with it. I kind of wanted to go the other direction. Everybody else is kind of going avid matrix. And I was like, yeah, I could do that, but I kind of want to stick to Grace, because I had the stereo controller for so long that to change workflows would really throw me for a loop. So why don't I just try to 
come up with some common denominators that I'm familiar with. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. It's really important, I think, to have at least some comfort level. It is, because it's a lot to bite off, this whole thing. And I had to take it in small chunks because the information overload was intense. And I just had to go, okay, first things first. Here's what I'm going to do here. Here's what I'm going to do here. I broke it up into pieces, not literally on a piece of paper, but I just took it one step at a time until I've arrived at this point of being done and ready to go. Now there's a whole nother level of little bite-sized chunks to take off. Fortunately, I've I've been invited into a, a group of other Atmos Mix engineers and like kind of a private message group, numbering less than 20 at this point, of a bunch of very smart people, some folks that have been been doing it a little bit longer than I have. Like I had a random question today and like, Five people jumped in and were like, did you try this? Did you try this? Oh, here's your problem. Problem solved. It was just like, okay, great. Thanks, guys. So that's, that's helpful. That community is really, really helpful. And I think those of us that are doing it want to see it succeed, and we want to see everybody else get into it. And like I went with a PMC system, but you don't have to do that. You could do it with a lot less expensive speakers, and I'm sure we're going to see different monitor controllers come out that are less expensive. I think the tool set's going to grow and it's going to get less expensive along the way for everybody. And then everybody will jump in and it'll be a thing. And hopefully we don't do a race to the bottom on rates and uh, everybody can work for a while at least. Well, it's somewhat like that already. I've heard of several, let's put it like this, neophyte mixers that were already getting Atmos work without having an Atmos studio, just doing it in headphones for a flat rate of $500 a track. And uh, they wanted it turned around as fast as possible. So that's not a good sign. This is major label work I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me that the quality of the mixes out there, the quality is getting better. At least the, you know when you hear it on headphones. And there's a lot of crap mixes out there that I've heard of some major artists that at least I grew up listening to. And... I'm certainly not going to name any names because I don't want to throw anybody into the bus professionally, but there's some terrible things out there. And now more and more as time goes along, we seem to be getting much better mixes out there. Before I got everything implemented, I had been mixing on a pair of Odyssey headphones and I had done some test mixes that nobody's heard. And then when the speakers came online, I opened up those same mixes and was like, okay, this is in the ballpark, but it definitely needs a lot more work. It needs to be flushed out more, but the the basic concept was there. So it frightens me to hear that people are just sticking to headphones and not checking their work at least one time on a set of speakers on a room that they go to. Well, that's the record company way, though. They want to do it as cheaply as possible. Yeah. And I know what happened with us back in the 5.1 days is we were getting paid a really reasonable rate. Mm. And all of a sudden, and I mean like almost overnight, it was cut by a third where you had three times the work for a third of the money. So I'm hopeful that that won't happen again. If we could, I want to transition a little bit because this sure. this conversation about Atmos dovetails right into the fifth edition of the Mix Engineer's Handbook, which is out recently. And I want to talk about that. That's a fifth edition. Obviously, you've been publishing this book for a while and giving everybody some great advice. What did you do to implement immersive mixing into the book? Well, it's a whole new chapter on its own, Mm. including an Atmos primer. And what I, you can't just, it has to be a book on its own, first of all, if you're going to talk about Atmos or just immersive mixing, but at least you can cover the basics and that's what I tried to do. But one of the things that I did, and I think, that I haven't seen this before. I broke surround sound formats down into three generations because otherwise there's so many formats that you know your eyes will glaze over. But it basically works like this. All of the formats that don't have a subwoofer that are basically 3.0, 4.0, 5.0, the early, mostly analog formats, those are the first generation. When we get to the point ones, the 5.1, 6, 7, 11 point, all those, that's second generation. Mm. 
And then when we get to truly immersive, where we're talking about overhead speakers and we're talking about 11.1, 11 11.2.4, 5.2.4, whatever it might be with the overhead speakers, that's third generation. And when you look at it that way, it makes things a whole lot easier to understand how we got to where we are. And then it's kind of easier to get your arms around, well, this is what's important and this this is what isn't now. So that that's one of the things that I put a lot of thought into just to try to make it easier to conceptualize. Yeah, and it, and I guess you can't just publish a book and just throw it out there. When you put out a new edition, obviously, you've got to go out there and, and do your research to get this a whole new chapter. So what what did you do, in essence, to prepare for that for that chapter? Well, I went in totally blind in that I knew I had to do this, but just like you, going through the learning curve of, of figuring out, well, wait a second, this is more than I thought it was. Thankfully, I was able to talk to a lot of people as part of my podcast. So mm. Steve Jenwick, for Steve instance. Jen, yeah. and Carrie Thomas, did you talk Carrie to Thomas Carrie? was on it from Dolby. And I think there was like a month where every week it was somebody else that was doing some sort of Atmos mixing. From that, I really gleaned a lot from people that were in it very, very early. And they pointed me in the right direction where to get the information I needed if they couldn't supply it. So that's kind of what happened there. And now Carrie, of course, is head of spatial audio at Apple and has left Dolby. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it's that's public knowledge, so I'm not... I'm not talking okay. out of turn here. That's if you go to LinkedIn and look at his profile, he's over there now, which scared me a bit at first because Carrie and I were we were messaging each other throughout this process and he was while we never met in person physically, he was supportive and giving me advice along the way. So when I heard that, I I freaked out a little bit, but then I realized, wait a minute, that can only be a good thing because he's been out in the field talking to everybody and developing a lot of the protocols that we're all using now, along with Steve and Maurice from PMC, I think. And now he's at Apple to help potentially solve any issues that may arise on that side of it, because he knows he knows our side of it. There's something very similar to that. Tom Holman from THX, Tom Holman Experiment. Ah. Tom was my mentor in surround sound because Tom was in it earlier than everybody else, 5.1. 5.1 is because of him, the point one concept he came up with. Huh. Then he went to Apple as their director of audio. And prior to that, I was able to get lots of information from him. He was always in the cutting edge. <laughs> and then he was not impossible to talk to, but almost. He would call me sometimes and he would ask a lot of questions, but he would never provide any answers. <laughs> <laughs> Typical Apple stuff. But I could usually get an idea of where he was going from the questions. Now, he's since retired. I think he retired in last June. Hmm. So there was definitely room for somebody else to come in. But Tom, he was you know, a real audio scientist. He, he was the guy behind all that. Like I say, THX. Yeah. Tom Holman Experiment. Wow. Okay. That's interesting because Apple has a habit of scooping up some of the best and the brightest. Dave Earl, a friend of mine, was forever known to a lot of people as SF Logic Ninja, San Francisco Logic Ninja, on YouTube. And just knew Logic like the back of his hand. Well, now he's the head of Logic at Apple. Hmm. Super bright person. and. Carrie is just another in a line of very bright people going over there. Yeah, the story, I, I heard the insider joke over there from somebody who's an early Apple employee, and it was that somebody new signs on, and they say, okay, just watch this person and do everything this person does for the next two weeks while you're on probation. So the person came in at 7 in the morning, and the new guy came in at 7 in the morning. The other guy left at 9 at night. He left at 9 at night. At the end of the two weeks, he got his pink slip. He got fired. And he says, well, why? I did everything the other guy did. And he said, yeah, but he's on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, great company. But yeah, I don't think I'd ever want to go work for Apple personally. 
Yeah, right. I'll keep my independence. I'd like to talk a little more about your book. So the immersive chapter is a new thing. What else is new? I took a big overview on smart processing. And the reason why is now I think we've jumped into a new era of, oh, plugins that are outside the box of what we're used to. So up until recently, everything was an emulation of something that was analog in the old days. And now we've gone beyond that where everything is, is brand new thinking. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to make sure that that was transmitted, that, look, everything that we're doing now going forward is going to be different. And you should think of it differently rather than having the analog ears and eyes on. Because while that's not, not going to go away, it's not going to be as needed or necessary as it used to be. So that's one thing. The other thing is I came up with a couple of processes of, well, one for timing your dynamics to the track. Hmm. And up until recently, the method I always taught was, well, here's how you do it by ear. And it worked. But then I got to thinking about it. Well, wait a second. Why do we have to do it like that? Maybe we can time it to the pulse of the track using the numbers that we come up with on delay. So if you find out whatever the delay time is from the tempo of the track, you can translate those numbers that go directly into the attack and release of compressors and whatever else you want, whatever else dynamics, but mostly compressors and limiters. Hmm. And it really works in that now you can go, well, I need a 32nd note here, I need a 64th note here. And you find all of a sudden it's breathing with the track and you don't have to use your ears. Now, for better or for worse, I don't, I don't know if that's better or not, but it certainly is faster. And of course, the other thing is, we've talked about this is the other method of uh, setting a, a quick balance. And that came about from the old days of, I always heard the story about Tom Dowd, the great... Tom Dowd, one yeah. of the godfathers of mixing. And I heard this from, I, I never worked with them or even met him, but I know several people that have. And one of the stories I always heard was he could get a mix together without listening to it. He would just watch the meters and it would be surprisingly in the ballpark. Now we're talking about 16 track, so it wasn't as complex. And it's all based around things that we've probably done before in the analog domain where, you know, the kick goes to minus seven or so, and the bass goes to minus seven on a VU meter, mm-hmm. things like that. And, and you can kind of figure it out from there. But then I thought, you know, let's extend this to the way it works today because we're all working on peak meters in our digital audio workstations. Right. So I came up with a system where if you just follow it and set your meters and kick goes here, snare goes here, vocal goes here, it doesn't matter how complex the mix is, it will get you in the ballpark like really fast. And it does work in most cases, not everything, but it does work. And and we talked about that because I remember you said you tried it and it it worked out okay. Oh yeah, I think using some of the VU meter plugins and and setting kick drum and vocal levels and yeah, I've definitely done that. And it's super helpful because it kind of just takes a lot of guesswork out and you get moving rather quickly. Yeah, but the, this is now using, instead of VU meters, which uh, sometimes the digital ones are calibrated a little bit differently or you read them differently, whatever the case. Ballistics are different. You know, everybody has a peak meter that's kind of standard. And if you just use that, it's surprisingly good. Yeah, the the built-in ones in the DAW. Yeah. Yeah. So that's in the book. There's four new interviews. And one of the problems, and, and I, it's not a problem, but one of the things that was happening was that the original book was all great mixers, but we'd call them classic mixers today. Some of the people aren't around anymore. Mm. So what I did is I moved many of those and I put them online as a bonus. And now I've been getting some younger mixers that are doing it today. So uh, Dan Corniff is there, and DJ Swivel, Jordan Young, Andrew Mari, Billy Decker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they all have different ways of doing things, and, and plug-in developers as well. So Interesting. 
today's mixers, a lot of them are deciding, okay, I do this and I work in a particular way and there's no plugin that allows me to do this as quickly as I like. So let me develop one. And that seems to be the case. Now, where a lot of great mixers are becoming programmers or at least hiring a great programmer and coming out with their own set of processors. It's a kind of a, a digital entrepreneurship, whereas, you know, maybe back in the day, the Bill Putnams of the day would build 1176s, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true, but in a good way. But it goes back to what I was saying. We're getting new processors that are thinking outside the box. They don't have to think analog. And as a matter of fact, they're coming from mixers that are young enough that they don't think analog. Yeah, because they didn't have that experience. Yeah. Or if they did, it was brief. Yeah. When you talk about processors like that, it makes me think of like Gullfoss. Yeah. For example. Exactly. And Smart EQ and Smart Comp. Quite honestly, I embrace all that stuff very easily. It's like, oh, hey, here's a new way of looking at this. I love it. I do too, and I always thought that if something can make a mix go faster for me, I'm all for it. <laughs> so am I. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's you just, you do it long enough and you kind of figure, gosh, if I could speed this process up and still get a great result for the client, then we all win. But, you know, I think that's happening naturally. I remember that the standard for a long time in the analog world was a day and a half for a mix. So you'd mix it that day, you'd come back the next morning, tweak it, and then go on to the next mix. And that's no longer the case. It's more like six hours for a mix. And if eight mix, eight hours is a long one. So I, I think that that's changing. Yeah, I think after about four or five hours max, I'm like ready to send it off to the client with the first version. And then I find that I'm already most of the way there. And there's just like little, little things that each artist or band is particular about, whether it's, they don't want any reverb or they want a ton of reverb or the vocal level is subject to the insecurities or the ego of, of the singer. And other than that, nobody ever comments and says, yeah, I don't like where you pan the guitars. Nobody ever says it. Yeah, right, right, right. They just don't care. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Some of the other things in the book, self-mastering, for instance, mm. I don't recommend it. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's inevitable that people are going to do it. So I felt the best thing is if I can keep them out of trouble and keep them from making it worse, then I've done my job. So that's what I try to do there. The other thing was editing for playlists and for streaming, because now that's all different. Song forms are different than they used to be. Yeah, You have to be aware that songs are all shorter. So as a result, 
that sometimes requires a lot of editing and depending on how you build it. Yeah. But nonetheless, if you built it the old fashioned way, then you probably have a traditional song form that's three and a half minutes or four minutes long, and that's not going to cut it. I think it's important for all of us, no matter what our age and experience, if being in this business is important to us, I think it's important that we not stay stuck in our old ways. I mean, I think we could stay rooted in that, but I think paying attention to new artists is so important. And for a period of time, I came kicking and screaming into paying attention, probably mostly because of my wife, because, you know, we'd be watching a show and I'm like, who's this? And she'd be like, you don't know who this is? How do you not know who this is? Mm. And I would always have to Google it later and, oh, okay, all right, well, I'll go listen to that. Because I just feel like, oh, she's right. You know, I probably should be a little more aware of what's going on. And that also, I think, pertains to some of the techniques, you know, like we're talking about, like using some of these new processors that aren't just straight up digital emulations of the traditional, the usual suspects. Yeah, one of the other things that I explored, and it's not something that I subscribe to myself, but that's not the case for new mixers, is saturation. Mm. And frankly, I'm old enough you know, and started in the analog days were something that we all hated. <laughs> we we didn't want saturation. We wanted to get as far away as, from it as we could, which is why when digital came along, everybody flocked to that. But now it's, for my subscribers, I always tell them, look, use that kind of as a last resort. If you can't make a track work, then this might be the way to do it. But as the first thing to do, uh, I don't think so. But nonetheless, it's something that had to be explored because it's it's what new mixers use. So we go where where they want to go. Yeah. <laughs> There's a plugin out there. I can't think of the name of the plugin. It's made by Newfangled Audio, and it's there's some clipping and some saturation capability in it. And when I got it, I was just I was going a little nuts with it. And mastering engineer that I work with came back to me, and he was just like, "Hey." Um, I know you got that newfangled audio thing on your stereo bus. Could you like just take a step back? And I'm like, yeah, okay, okay. I'm with you. And sure enough, I dial all that back and he'd send me a new master. I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. And I could hear the difference of what he was talking about. But new stuff's exciting. You know, when you have new gear that you announce, I think it's on Mondays you announce it. Yeah. I'm always like, oh, okay, what, what's Bobby got today? Oh, let me go check that out. I'll download the trial. Oh, crap, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> oh, no, I'm overusing it. And now I'm getting barked out by my mastering engineer. Yeah, well, you know, that's, again, saturation is, yeah, it's funny because I always tell everybody, we hated that stuff in the old <laughs> days. We tried to get away from it. And you guys are, it's okay to embrace it, but to use it as the first thing you put on something, it's like, uh, maybe there's a better way to do it. Yeah. Back to the book for a second. I'm definitely going to get myself a copy because once again, I always subscribe to the theory that no matter your experience, you got to explore what other people are talking about because maybe you know like 80% of it if you're an experienced mixer, but there's going to be new stuff in there and there's going to be new ways of doing things like your way of doing something that I hadn't even thought about. I love getting that kind of information and digesting it and trying to apply some of your ideas to my workflow and seeing what sticks and what doesn't. So for my audience that's listening now, if you're thinking, well, I don't need that. I've been mixing for X amount of years. I beg to differ. I would encourage you to, to pick up Bobby's book because what's the worst that can happen? You learn something new. I mean, I think it's that's critical from my way of thinking and my way of progressing, no matter the experience. Well, if nothing else, you probably enjoy the interviews. I'm always shocked at the number of people that say, wow, this is the best part for me. Yeah, it really is. I mean, you're a great interviewer anyway, so I can only imagine that you couple that with some great information. So how does this book differ from your music mixing workbook, which is also new. Well, Mix Engineer's Handbook's in its fifth edition. Music Mixing Workbook is new. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a companion. And what it is, is it's a series of exercises. 
There's some basic explanation. So if you just had that book, it, it will explain the processes that you're going through. But it's a series of exercises. I don't remember how many, 175, I think. Oh my gosh. And it takes you through everything you can think of right from the beginning. Now, for some people, it's not what they need because they've been through that before. But what I tried to do is make sure that there are things that really sound bad as well. So it says, okay, try this, and you do it, and you go, oh, it sounds pretty awful. Well, okay, try this instead, just so you can hear the difference between them. So that's what that was. And and it was a reaction to a lot of the questions and requests I was getting for something like that. It just took me way too long to get around to it. I'm sure you have like your mixing hat that you put on, but then there's also the book writing hat. Does the book writing hat ever just kind of get in the way of the mixing world for you? Because you're like, oh, wait a minute, let me stop and document what I'm doing here because that's good book material. To be honest with you, just like all of us, I stand on the shoulders of many giants. And the stuff that's in the book is not for me. It's not because I'm so smart, because I'm not. It's I collect these ideas and these techniques. Mm. So as we go along, I'm always collecting them. If there's something that looks cool or if just something that looks different that I haven't seen before, I collect it. And then I know that at some point in time I'm going to use that Maybe in a course, but probably find the book sooner or later. But it's certainly not me. Mm. I wish it was, and I wish I was so smart, but I'm not. So you must spend a fair amount of time not only talking with people, visiting with people locally, but also maybe watching some YouTube videos and checking out what people are doing? Not so much that. It's just in the course of a day it might happen. Now, it might be a video that I'll see. Or if there might be something that I'll go, oh, okay, I, I should check that out. But you'd be surprised the number of times that that happens, where there's just something that you go, oh, yeah, okay, I should check that out. And for most people, they go right by it. It's like, okay, it works for me or it doesn't. And But for me, I, I you know, I collect it. You pay close attention to what's happening. Yeah. Do you keep a little notebook with you or do you just memorize it? No, no, there's it's all in notes. <laughs> You're like a reporter. Yes. I, I feel more like an archivist, if you want to know the truth. Yeah. When I first started the book, let's say the first edition. So I tell the story. I was a pretty good recording engineer, but I was a really bad mixer. And I just couldn't get the hang of it. I thought it was good, but then I actually had somebody tell me, you must be the worst mixer in the world. Huh. And then shortly after, I had an A&R guy call me and say, this is the worst mix I've ever heard. And I thought, wow, <laughs> I better get good at this or else I won't be in the business. So luckily I knew all the best people and I thought, well, maybe I'll write a book on this. And everybody said, no, you can't. it's too subjective. You can't write a book on mixing. But I thought, well, I have to learn this, so I'm going to figure this out. And I went and I talked to the giants, like I say. And Every one of them told me how they did what they did. And I would say, are you sure you want this information to get out? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, nobody can do it like me anyway. So I had these interviews, and it was 25 or so, and I, I thought, this is the basis of the book. And as I'm going through, I'm thinking to myself, these interviews are really good. I should just include them. And it turned out to be some sort of a secret sauce, actually, because people really like them. The original interviews are way longer, and mm -hmm. I've since consolidated them somewhat, so they're more to the point, but they were really good, and it became kind of a trademark, and most of my books do have that. They have interviews of people that gave me the background information. Not all of them, but most of them. But anyway, that's how it started. I wanted it to become a better mixer, and I have. I've become a better mixer thanks to... Thanks to your own books? Well, thanks to the Giants telling me how they did it. And when, I'm, when I talk about Giants, it's Bruce Swedeen. It's one of the godfathers of mixing. It's Al Schmidt. It's mm -hmm. Elliot Shiner. It's people like this. Ken Scott, Jeff Emmerich. And, yeah, you know, many who are not with us anymore. Ken is. Ken is still with us. Yeah. Jeff is not. And Al's not. Al's not. And I was lucky enough to actually 
do a project with Ken. And I co-wrote his autobiography, hmm. which is called Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust. So Ken was one of the five Beatle engineers, and then he went on to engineer and produce Supertramp and David Bowie, all the best Bowie albums, among many others. But whenever I produce something, I never engineer the tracking because I just can't do it. I can't. Yeah. I have to be a single mind. So I usually hire somebody really good. Somebody that I interviewed, somebody from the book usually, and I did one with Ken Scott. And Ken was great because in a way it was validating what I thought I knew. So he would do something and I'd go, oh yeah, okay, i do that too. Or there'd be something I'd go, oh wait, classic story. So Ken is setting up for basics and he gets a C12 and he puts it on the bass, bass amp. And he looks at me and he says, this is what I used on Paul, meaning Paul McCartney. Yeah. So the stupid bass player comes in and he goes, why are you using that microphone? You should be using a D12. And he, and he goes and he gives Ken a hard time. And finally I had to pull him aside and say, okay, do you realize the background of this guy? Do you realize what he's worked on? And he didn't. Mm. But he became very humble after that. Oh, I bet he did. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, a C12 on, on a bass amp, how many people would think about that? I want to take a little side trip here for a second because I think... I'm willing to bet that a large portion of my audience and most likely your audience as well wonders about the relationships, the connections. You know, it's like how we get to talk to these people, how we know these people. And I have to say that my podcast has certainly opened up a lot of doors for me, but it's also just being able to hang with people and, and get along. What are your overall comments about networking and expanding your circle of people that you know in an industry where there's a lot of rock stars of our industry that we all know. They're not known, of course, very far outside that. But I think some people might be like asking themselves, oh, how do I get to know some of these people out there? What's the secret sauce to hobnobbing with some of these people that we talk about or that we interview? What would you say to that? Well, I'd have to say the first thing is I was the worst at networking. Hmm. I'm still not great, but I know the technique now. I could do it. For me, it was a lucky break that started everything. And the lucky break was I was on tour and we're on tour bus. I was a guitar player. And the bass player came on, on the tour bus and said, I just got a job writing for the music paper. Now, the music paper was a local fairly big publication out of New York, and it had everything to do with music that was happening. It was really good. But for some reason, I thought, you know, if he could do that, so can I. So I started to put feelers out, and I got a gig writing a one-off article for Mix Magazine, which I just found recently was horrible, what I did. <laughs> but that started me down the road of writing. I kind of liked it. So before I knew it, I was writing for a dozen magazines. I'm still doing the other stuff, but I was writing for Hollywood Reporter, Grammy Magazine, Recording Engineer Producer, if you remember that, uh, EQ, on and on, Billboard. And through that, I got a lot of assignments to interview people, many of which were some of these greats. Now, I knew many of them because I'd be in the studio. And back then in Hollywood, the studio culture was most facilities had multiple rooms. So you would just naturally bump into people in the hallways, in the lounge, in the kitchen, in the game room. So I knew some of them from there. But I must admit the lucky break was I was writing articles. So I got to talk to a lot of these people. And I knew them from hmm. that. And, and, you know, we became friends. I wasn't objectionable talking to them. So, you know, they, they were willing to talk to me again. And that's how it started for me. So I, I was lucky in a lot of ways. If it wasn't for that one incident, maybe none of this ever happens. Hmm. Now, I have to say, since I've learned many techniques on networking, and it's something that I do teach people about. The, one of the best ones comes from uh, 
I can't think of the guy's name. He was the musical director for Alicia Keys for a while. I can't think of his name, unfortunately. And he told me what he did. I thought it was brilliant. So he was fresh in New York, and he'd hear of these industry parties, and he'd show up, and one way or another, he'd talk his way into it. And he'd walk around, and he'd just say hi to everybody. Nothing more than that, just hi. And he did that. And after a number of these parties, somebody said, wait, 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 come over here. Who are you? And they began to talk. And here, the guy that called him over was an A&R guy at Columbia Records. Hmm. And he said, can you be in my office tomorrow morning and show me what you got? And the next thing you know, he was working with Diddy and he was working with Alicia Keys and didn't take long from there. But he just did nothing more than engage them on a very superficial level, but it was one of these things where people recognized him after a while. And I thought, that's pretty brilliant, actually. Now, the whole thing is you have to find out where those parties are. And during COVID, obviously, we wouldn't have that, but right. I think we're coming back again around on that. But, you know, you have to be where these things are happening, unfortunately. There's more and more that you can do online, and usually you can ask anybody cold a question and they'll most likely give you an answer and this is however you find them online yeah so that's a a good way to start but again you can't be overbearing you have to be brief you have to be to the point and you know stay that way and then you know who knows what will happen from there that's another good way yeah and most important i think that you mentioned out of that that story is just showing up and putting yourself out there and be willing to engage with people, even if it's just a hi kind of a thing. Well, I think that works in person. Sometimes I get people messaging me. They just say hi. And I'm like, okay, what, what, you know, the online version of that doesn't seem to work as well. Yes, I agree. But if you came up to me at a, at a trade show and said hi, I'd be like, hey, what's up? Who are you? Let's talk. Yeah, I'm the same way. But... I mean, the pro audio world in itself is a very small world, honestly, when it gets down to it. And it, you know, it extends kind of from the people involved doing records to manufacturers and it can grow beyond that. But I think just trying to get out there and introduce yourself and I don't know, be an asset to people in some respect, if you can, as opposed to a problem. Yeah. Or or just asking for too much. You know, I, I actually had an, another thing that just occurred to me because I never think about this. It's another lifetime. But when I first moved to Los Angeles, I needed a job. And I was doing whatever I could in whatever studio or playing and whatever, but I still needed some steady money. So I got a job at a place called Everything Audio. Everything Audio was the, it was a pro audio dealer. It was a big one. So I got to meet a lot of people through that. And then right afterwards, I got a job as the VP of sales for AMEC consoles. So we were selling consoles to people. They were in the UK and I was in the United States. But I I met some people through that as well. But it wasn't my primary way of meeting the people that eventually became important to my career. Hmm. I just want to take another trip back to the book here for a second. What are you hoping people get out of this book, out of the Mix Engineer's Handbook? Clarity. Hmm. And that's what I think has been happening in the past. I hope it continues from the standpoint that, you know, we all have questions when we start. And if this can provide some answers, I think that's, that's important. It's a good step. It'd make me feel good if that's the case. This particular book, not, not the fifth edition, but one through four, they've been a standard textbook in colleges all over the world. Mm. And as a result, a lot of people, a whole generation of mixers has, have, and hit makers have learned from this book, which I feel very gratified. I find this out when I have someone on, on a podcast who will say, at some point, I started with your book in college. It makes me feel old, but it makes me feel good <laughs> when that happens. Well, that's great. Well, for the audience, I'm going to include a link, of course, in the show notes to the Mix Engineer's Handbook, and all the other books that Bobby has out, which 
well, I can't possibly put a link to them all, so I'll definitely at least put a direct link to the Mix Engineer's Handbook and the Music Mixing Workbook, and then I'll put a link to your page, Bobby, with, with all of your books, which number quite a bit. You've got several books and courses, and you're really a fountain of information. As I've gushed on this podcast before with you and to others, your podcast continues to be the one podcast that I consistently stay up on because I learn the most from it. Every time you put out a show, your interviews are great, but also the things that you talk about prior to your interviews happening at the beginning of the show, those are the nuggets that I'm always looking for as well. It's like, oh, okay, what's going on here? What's going on with this company or that concept or this new idea? That always intrigues me quite a bit. And I, I highly value it. So link will be in the show notes to all of that for you, audience. Thank you for that, Matt. You know, it's funny that beginning intro part that I do, again, standing in the shoulders of giants, I used to go to a Saturday morning tech breakfast. And it was truly tech. There were some entertainment people there, but it was mostly tech. And it was in the beginning of... There were not founders, but they were first employees of Google and of Blogger and of Facebook. And I learned an awful lot about social media and everything through them. But the guy that ran it, and we'd always have a guest, before the guest came up, he would do the same thing where he would give 10 minutes of what the latest news and tech was. And I always felt the same way. It's like, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, that's pretty cool. So I tried to emulate that in my podcast. And thank you. I'm, I always like to hear that it's useful. Oh, it's completely useful. And I always wonder, how the heck does Bobby know all this? So, so like, he, he's so relevant with all this stuff. Research. <laughs> <laughs> Paying attention, right, talking to people, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, it's always great to talk to you, Bobby. I always enjoy my conversations with you. And trying to put a little more effort into coming down to Los Angeles in the future here, it's so easy for me to fly down from Northern California. You know, it's like an hour and I'm there and then the world's at my fingertips, fortunately with the people I know. So at some point I would love to get together and have lunch with you or have a coffee or maybe you and I and a group of people get together and, and talk shop. I would love that, Matt, either us, which would be good, or you can come on Wednesday when we have the audio lunch. The lunch, right. I know. I've got so many standing invitations that I have to get down there and just do that because honestly, I could fly down in the morning, hang out for the morning and drink coffee and then go to lunch with everybody and then be back home by the end of the day, which the brilliance of, of cheap Southwest flights. <laughs> yeah. We won't talk too much more about that because that's it, kind of a private thing. It's an invite only. Yeah. It's, it's not something that I do. I'm just a participant, so it's not up to me to give the information out. Right, right. And I've only been like invited by people who go, and so I won't, I won't try to extend a worldwide invitation. Everybody. Come <laughs> on down to Los Angeles to this lunch. Matt said we could be here. Yeah, they would love that. But thanks again. Good to see you. Oh, Likewise, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. All right, take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Bobby Osinski here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, you know, if you have a guest suggestion, as usual, I like to get those by way of the guest suggestion form. That's over at workingclassaudio.com. Not to be mistaken by the contact form. You know how I get with that, right? Okay, I know I sound like a broken record, but really, just send it through the guest suggestion form and I'll stop my complaining. Anyways, that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes, as usual, Anne-Marie Plo on the editing Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song and the mystical voice of Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, follow us on social media, and until next time, take care.
Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 